Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, it's Basha here. And I want to start this week's episode of the Slow Newscast by reading to you from the Cambridge English Dictionary. I know, I know. Just stay with me. So the dictionary defines a fib as a small lie that doesn't cause harm. And the reason that I'm telling you this is because it is, as you might have guessed, a really well-worn device in Boris Johnson's toolkit, the fib. And it served him really well for decades, from Eton to Brussels to City Hall. But perhaps... A lifelong fibber, in time, always becomes a liar. And perhaps a fib in Downing Street, from the lips of a prime minister, is always magnified. This week's story, reported by my colleague Lara Spirit, is about how the character of the prime minister has come to change the office that he occupies, a place where deceit and deception appear to have become common currency. Over to Lara. Hidden in the Chiltern Hills, 41 miles from London and deep in the Buckinghamshire countryside, there's a 16th century manor house. It's got a heated swimming pool, a tennis court, 10 bedrooms, deep carpeted bathrooms, a galleried great hall. There's a thousand acres of land and staff are constantly to hand. This is Chequers. It was given to the office of Prime Minister just over a century ago to deal with what these days we might call a first world problem. What if the leaders of the future weren't as wealthy as the ones who'd been before? It is not possible to foresee or foretell from what classes or conditions of life the future wielders of power in this country will be drawn. This is from the 1917 Chequers Act. Some may be as in the past men of wealth and famous descent. Some may belong to the world of trade and business. Others may spring from the ranks of the manual toilers. The next station is Aylesbury. This train terminates here. I spent some time near Chequers while I've been working on this story. In the pubs and in the farm shop that Prime Ministers have visited for decades while they've been staying in the big house. I came across people who happily remember a time when Boris Johnson popped in for a beer and chips or a New Year's Eve with the family. One of the pubs, the plough at Casden, feels very ordinary when you go in but there's a sense that you're close to power. After all, not many pubs have pictures of the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, on the walls, hanging out with David Cameron. A Chinese firm bought the whole pub in honour of President Xi after he came here. Chequers has been a silent witness to some of Britain's most defining moments. 
It's where Neville Chamberlain came close to a nervous breakdown after the Munich Pact, where Churchill made a number of radio speeches, where Dennis and Margaret Thatcher, then Norma and John Major, enjoyed TV meals on trays. Friday night at Checkers. It's a place to relax. Theresa May and her husband Philip are watching a quiz show. And it's a funny window into the mind of Prime Ministers. Tony Blair hosted Jerry Halliwell here, and David Cameron invited Claudia Schiffer. The story I want to tell you is about this Elizabethan manor house and who was there over 12 crucial days back in March 2020. But it's also a story about Boris Johnson's conduct in a defining moment of his premiership, about how he told the country to do one thing and then, almost immediately, did something different. Now, I texted him on the 17th of June, 2020. And I said, the question is, did the Prime Minister visit Chequers between March the 23rd and March the 27th this year? I'm Lara Spirit, and I'm a reporter at Tortoise. This week on the Slow Newscast, the Ministry of Untruths, Boris Johnson's History of Lies. Can you talk a bit about how the story first began? So in the middle of June 2020, we got a tip from a person who doesn't work at Chequers but is familiar with it. This is Kerry Thomas, one of my colleagues at Tortoise. And that person told us that they understood that Boris Johnson had been going there back in March, so three months before the tip came in. And... You know, as you can remember at the time, um, we'd seen resignations for breaches of COVID rules. And so I think we were struck immediately. This could be quite a big story. This could be real trouble for Boris Johnson if it's true. I tried to get hold of his director of communications, Lee Kane. So I texted him on the, just looking back at my texts now, I texted him on the 17th of June, 2020. And I said, the question is, did the Prime Minister visit Chequers between March the 23rd and March the 27th this year? And the next day, the 18th of June, I hadn't heard back, so I texted him again and said, are you going to deal with this or do you want me to talk to somebody else? Later that day, five o'clock on the 18th of June, Lee Kane texted me back and he said, hi Kerry, he didn't visit during the dates you mentioned. So he said he wasn't there? So it was unequivocal. But still, we'd had this really good tip-off. You know, we thought we were onto something. So I went back to him the next day, next morning, and I said, look, I'm sorry for going around again, but I just want to be clear that you're not wriggling on the language here, that when I say he visited, don't get hung up on the word. Tell me, was he there in any capacity at all between March the 23rd and the 27th? And this time he got back to me quicker, took him a couple of hours, and he said, same answer as before, I'm afraid. And you believed that Lee was telling you the truth? Well, I guess, you know... I've been dealing with Downing Street in various ways since probably like 1990 or maybe just a bit before then, actually earlier than that. And I thought just based on, you know, like three decades of dealing with them, that a director of communications wouldn't just categorically deny something that was true. It might prevaricate, might tell you a half-truth, might use any of these sort of traditional options. But I just didn't think that you would get a flat-out lie. What a chump, eh? I asked around. I asked friends who've also dealt with Downing Street for a long time and showed them the text and said, do you think that there's any way that this, this is not true? And there was nobody who thought it was a possibility that it might be a straight lie. And so basically, 
at that point, we basically thought our source must have got it wrong somehow. There must have been some confusion. But at that point, effectively, we gave up. We thought it must be true that the Prime Minister didn't visit in that period. And we, we left it alone. More than a year later, on the 30th of November last year... The Mirror described how 40 or 50 people were said to have been crammed cheek by jowl into a medium-sized room... It was a COVID nightmare, one source says. We know from a, a source that uh, there were drinks and there were nibbles. The mirror breaks the story of the first Downing Street party. Our video has emerged appearing to show the Prime Minister's former press spokeswoman, Allegra Stratton, and some of her Downing Street colleagues are laughing and joking about a Christmas party. And a week later, ITV News broadcast a video of Downing Street staff joking about cheese and wine during a mock press conference. No. It was a business meeting. No. <laughs> <laughs> joking. This is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> And it was not socially distanced. The denials came thick and fast. I've been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that... I don't even know if an event took place, but if it did, that no rules were broken. I've been reassured that all guidance was carefully followed. All guidance was followed. A trickle of revelations turned into a flood and we started to see a pattern of denying stories until they became undeniable. We're beyond that now. Sue Gray's update, the first draft of her inquiry into what went on in Downing Street during lockdown, was damning. She had to leave a lot out because of the police investigation, but it's clear there'll be a torrent of hard evidence in her final report. WhatsApp messages, hundreds of photographs, stuff that can't be wished away. But the number 10 garden is a place where meetings were had and indeed uh, uh, um, uh, business uh, was conducted. Uh, occasionally they would have a drink afterwards. And, and, uh, and there was that. 10 minutes there uh, around uh, sharing a piece of cake. Uh, I don't think that really constitutes uh, you know, a party in the way that some of the other more serious allegations were being investigated. Maybe Downing Street hadn't been straight with us either back in June 2020 about Boris Johnson's visits to Chequers. I said Downing Street there, but... Actually, this isn't a story about staffers at number 10. It's about the character of the man at the top and about how his character changed an institution. My colleague Matt Dancona has known Boris Johnson for years. Sometimes they've been close. And we had our, I would say, sort of final falling out over his um, article in 2018 about um, Muslim women in religious clothing. More recently, definitely not. He was, at the time, this is 2018, slightly in the doldrums. And I found out that he'd seen Steve Bannon, Trump's former chief strategist. And Bannon had said words to the effect of, get off your knees, do something that makes the plaster come off the ceiling. It was interesting. It was almost it was weeks after he'd seen Bannon that he launched this. So I'm fairly sure it was calculated. He was furious with me about what I wrote about, not only Steve Bannon, but also the Islamophobia. Of the Did piece. he tell you that he was? Yes, he wrote to me. He, he, he sent me a series of furious texts demanding retraction and so on. And I texted back, look, you know, I'm not going to retract it. So enjoy your evening. And I, I then went to the cinema with my children. And when I got out, there were, I think, memory serves, there were more than 20 missed calls. And was he denying that he'd told mistruths in this? I, he initially denied he'd met Bannon, and then that started to soften a bit, uh, which is a familiar pattern in, in his relationship with the truth, is that he'll issue an outright denial, first of all, and then it's, it starts to, 
you know, as memory serves, he'll say, I, I, I think I only met him once or I may have discussed with him. But he, he always is, and this, this is the pattern of behavior, both in private life and his public life. He, he always says, no, I know I didn't. Uh, when he was accused of having had an affair with Petronella Wyatt, he used the phrase, it was an inverted pyramid of piffle, which, you know, uh, was so classically him, but also the opposite of the truth, because he had. And, and this, this, is, this is how he operates. His initial practice is to say, I didn't do anything. You know, whether it's lying or meeting Steve Bannon or having an affair or breaking COVID lockdown rules. He just says, I didn't do it. You know, it wasn't me, someone else. And then he tries to sort of find a way, a path through what people are saying and what he is willing to admit to. Matt isn't alone. What's striking is how many people who've worked closely with Boris Johnson over the years have ended up distrusting him. More than once, they fired him because he didn't tell the truth. He was sacked from the Times over a front-page article with a made-up quote, then sacked as a shadow minister by the Tory leader Michael Howard for lying about an affair. It's that pattern of behaviour which Boris Johnson is accused of repeating as he tried to dismiss the allegations of parties at Downing Street. Before Christmas last year, in our investigation, this is what the picture looked like. We'd had that tip that Boris Johnson broke his own lockdown rules by going to checkers. Our source was adamant they'd got this right. And the way Downing Street handled the stories of parties cast doubt on the whole operation there, it didn't just look evasive, it looked dishonest. So our story, which they shut down so categorically, was worth another look. I went back to the beginning. What did we know for sure? Hi, folks, I want to bring you up to speed with something that's happening today, which is that I've developed mild symptoms of the coronavirus, that's to say a temperature and... We knew Boris Johnson caught COVID on the 27th of March, 2020. I am working from home, I'm self-isolating, and that's entirely the right thing to do. And he was in Downing Street then. So the 27th of March became one bookend. The other was March the 16th. It was one of the big days of early lockdown, when Boris Johnson advised all of us to stop unnecessary contact and travel. If he visited his second home at Chequers after that, he'd have been breaking his own guidance. So I refocused on the 16th to the 27th of March. You'll remember that time, because we all do. The uncertainty and fear, the hand-washing orders and horrifying scenes in Italy, the incongruously beautiful weather... Coronavirus briefings had started earlier in the month. People had begun to die from COVID-19. And just a few days earlier, on the 12th of March, we had that strangely chilling message. I must level with you, level with the, the British public. Um, more families, uh, many more families, are going to lose loved ones before their time. Most of us were still going to work, or university, or school, still in denial, really. But that was Monday the 16th, and we all knew then that more restrictions were coming. It's 4.30. You're watching a BBC News special with the latest on the coronavirus pandemic, and we'll be live in Downing Street for the Prime Minister's news conference very shortly. So far, there are 1,543 confirmed cases of the virus in the UK. I remember sitting in my university library in the days leading up to this, constantly refreshing a website and seeing the hundreds of thousands of COVID cases around the world tick reliably and terrifyingly up and up. 
I remember rushing home from university on the 15th, and almost everyone else doing the same, the hallways and courtyards clogged up with suitcases. I remember going for a walk with my family, worrying aloud in that bright sun about what would follow. And then I remember watching Boris Johnson's address and hearing his new instructions for the first time. Now is the time for everyone to stop non-essential contact with others and to stop all unnecessary travel. We need people to start working from home where they possibly can. And you should avoid pubs, clubs, theatres and other such social venues. So by Thursday 19th, a lot of us were at home and the national mood was sombre. Better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. There was a definite sense that we were all in this together. We took it all very seriously. I remember getting up early to go to the supermarket when there wouldn't be many people around, pleading with my grandmother to stay away from the allotment in case she got close to anybody. And I remember watching my sister go to work every day in a care home. I feared for her, but I never suspected that by the end of the first wave, a third of all the people that she was looking after would be dead. And there were particular tensions over second homes. Bad enough that on the 23rd of March, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, had to make the guidance clear. Yes, well, we've said that people should not take unnecessary journeys, you know, no unnecessary travel. And I don't regard going to your holiday home as a necessary journey. So people should uh, stay put and they should stay at home. Signs started to go up in coastal resorts saying things like, this is not time for a holiday. Locals only was scrawled in the sand in Cornwall. Go home rats, written on a sign in North Wales. Then the big announcement. The time has now come for us all to do more. The one that everybody remembers. That came on the Monday. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. It was 23rd of March. You probably remember the date, and it's key to this story. The Prime Minister could hardly have been clearer. We did what he said. We began that strange period of deserted streets and town centres, clear motorways and empty skies, together. People around the UK are waking up to unprecedented restrictions on the way we live. Crowds became a thing of the past. Even joggers were frightening. I remember being shouted at that day on a run as I got too close to a couple. The exercising jogger, the puffing and panting jogger, you can feel their breath come and you can sometimes actually feel yourself inhale it. So there's no doubt that there is a danger there. When I was first asked to look into the story we'd been given, that Boris Johnson had travelled between Downing Street and Chequers at this time, I just couldn't believe it happened. It seemed unthinkable. And Downing Street had already categorically denied that rules were broken. So I asked Downing Street the question we'd asked before. Had the Prime Minister made use of Chequers during this time? Then a striking thing happened. They answered a completely different question. They said this claim that the PM did not comply with lockdown regulations is entirely inaccurate. Odd. So I asked again, and the press officer said, we'll have to get back to you. I waited. And I got another answer to another question I hadn't asked. 
I was told Boris Johnson complied with the rules when they came into law on 26th of March at 1pm. I've gone through all the coronavirus announcements around this time. The 26th. Nobody talked about the 26th. The key announcement was on the 23rd. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. It began with immediate effect. Not in three days' time. You must stay at home now. Eventually, I dragged an admission out of Downing Street. It was implicit, not explicit. But I was pretty clear that until the 26th of March at 1pm, the Prime Minister had made use of his second home. He'd been to Chequers. He'd travelled between his two homes between the 16th and 27th of March 2020. It was time for me to publish what I knew. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This was the point when Downing Street stopped denying and started justifying. The next message I got was about Carrie Johnson, Boris Johnson's wife. They told me, at that time, Mrs. Johnson was heavily pregnant and had been placed in a vulnerable category and advised to minimise social contact. In line with clinical guidance, and to minimise the risk to her, they were based at Chequers during this period, with the Prime Minister commuting to Downing Street to work. Commuting. Downing Street had confirmed this story. The very one they denied in terms a year and a half earlier. To get this far, I tried emailing Downing Street. I tried freedom of information requests. When my colleague Pippa Crera, who's 
broken most of the Downing Street party stories along with ITV's Paul Brand. She had the first ones, I'm contractually obliged to say, I think, and the best ones, of course. This is Dan Bloom, online political editor at the Mirror newspaper. When she breaks those stories, first of all, she'll have them from her anonymous sources, you know, sometimes within Downing Street itself, uh, because how else do these things come out? Like the Mirror story, ours began with an anonymous source. I wanted to know if Dan thought this evasiveness was normal. That kind of shifting narrative and, and um, wanting to essentially provide a reason to say, I did nothing, you know, I'm sorry, but I did nothing wrong, is um, common to many, many politicians, but is you know, perhaps more pronounced in Boris Johnson than, than we've seen in some others recently. Dan's been a member of the lobby for six years. And what the lobby is, is an organisation of uh, journalists at lots of different papers, websites uh, and broadcasters who all essentially get the chance to question number 10 at a daily or twice daily briefing and a couple of um, privileges that no one really uses anymore, such as being able to stand in members' lobby and ask MPs questions as long as you follow some very arcane rules, such as not being allowed to sit down and uh, not holding a notebook and I think there's some talk of having your hands behind your back, uh, though I'm not 100% sure on that one. Tortoise doesn't have a lobby journalist, so we don't have to stand with our hands behind our backs. But we also don't have that daily access. Essentially, um, journalists go into number 10. It's actually number nine in that sort of £2.4 million briefing room. And they ask questions to the Prime Minister's official spokesman. It's off camera, but it is on the record. In reality, it's often a frustrating experience. Often the conversation will go something like, can you rule such and such out? And number 10 will give an answer that is not yes or no. And you'll say, just to be clear, though, can you rule such and such out? And you might ask a third time or perhaps a fourth time. And then sometimes journalists might say, just to be clear, we're going to go away from this briefing writing that you can't rule out X, Y, Z. Are you sure you don't want to say anything? Because that is what we're going to write, because you're not ruling it out. Generally, it's, you have the right to push as much as you like, but number 10 are also completely free to stonewall the questions because there's no law and there's no hard rule. As I was discovering, you asked about this story of um, Boris Johnson allegedly driving shortly after making his stay-at-home speech on the 23rd of March to his second home in Chequers um, in a lobby briefing. I'm just wondering what it was that you asked and what their response to your question was. So we essentially asked for more detail because uh, thanks to your reporting, there was some awareness of the fact that Boris Johnson was commuting to work, uh, is how they put it, I think, from Chequers uh, during that crucial kind of roughly the week after March the 16th, wasn't it, when he had told people avoid unnecessary travel, but it wasn't actually laid down in the law. And we essentially, this, this was a classic example of asking the same question in different ways and just trying to get more detail. Because the thing about lockdown breaches or alleged lockdown breaches is the stories hinge entirely on the detail. Because, for example, the law changed at 1pm on March the 26th. So if he had been away from the place where he was living without reasonable excuse under the law, then after 1pm on March the 26th, he could potentially have been breaching the law. But before then, he wouldn't have been breaching the law. Might have been breaching guidance, might not. So it's a crucial factor in kind of how you look at the story and how you approach it. So we're asking questions like, when exactly did Boris Johnson and Carrie return from number 10? 
And they wouldn't tell us that saying, I wouldn't get into individual movements. And then we ask, well, why can't you get into the individual movements? Because usually the reason you can't do that is a security reason. And there's no security risk of something that happened two years ago, unless terrorist obtains a TARDIS and goes back in time. But you need to ask these questions in a public forum to kind of get a handle on exactly what they're saying about each aspect of it and and, um, which bits need pursuing further. One of the interesting and actually difficult aspects of this story is the role that Carrie Johnson plays in it. There's a lot of Carrie bashing, just low-grade sexism pointed at the Prime Minister's wife. There are also a bunch of people who'd hate to think that that's what motivates them. But they still fret about Carrie's unhappy influence on Boris, even if they can see that she's not the first Prime Minister's partner who's had something to say. So here's my experience of trying to understand where Carrie Johnson fits into the Checker story. It's all gone through her press advisor. I've been given the runaround on Carrie Johnson's behalf as much as I have on Boris's. The original position, the one that we heard just a few minutes ago, was that Carrie Johnson had gone to Chequers because she was pregnant and vulnerable, and stayed there. But I heard she'd actually come back to Downing Street between those dates I cared about. I was told that that was categorically false and completely fabricated. Except it turned out to be true. I'd come across an Instagram post a photo which seemed to have been posted from Downing Street when her press person said Carrie was in checkers. So the line changed. In the interest of being transparent, they now realised Carrie Johnson had come back to London for a scan. Some people will sympathise with Carrie Johnson's dilemma. In March 2020, she was quite heavily pregnant. There was the choice of a flat in Downing Street with nobody to look after her and her husband as busy as he'd ever been in his life, or a country mansion with staff. On the account we've been given, it was Carrie Johnson's pregnancy which was the decisive factor in the move to Chequers, and Boris Johnson who concluded that he was within his rights to commute from there. In all that, the Carrie bashers would see more evidence of her outsized influence on her husband's decisions. But the truth is, we don't know enough to make that judgement. Nor do we know the truth of recent allegations that Carrie was involved in the evacuation of dogs and cats from Afghanistan last year which the Prime Minister denied signing off, but which leaked emails suggest he did. We don't know, either, the full truth of accusations that Carrie's friends had the code to the couple's Downing Street flat, coming and going during lockdowns, while confidential papers surrounded them. And nor do we yet know the full truth that it was Carrie who organised both a birthday gathering for her husband against the rules of lockdown and a separate party, with ABBA, in the flat itself. We don't know who made the call, the Prime Minister or his wife. But there's definitely an influence. And it led to Boris and Carrie Johnson, together, doing something which was against the rules of lockdown. And then making it very difficult for us to find out about it. How fair is it to pull the strands of this story together? The lies and the deceptions, and see them all leading back to Boris Johnson? We know that more than once in his life, he's been caught lying in ways that were serious enough at the time to hurt his career. That makes him very, very unusual. Can you think of anyone you know who that's happened to? But as I said earlier, this isn't only a question of one man's standards and the way he behaves. It matters much more if that man, now that he's Prime Minister, has started to change the character of the government, of Downing Street, maybe of British politics in general. 
And my favourite ever comment about Downing Street was the Gordon Brown comment when Damien McBride was sacked for smearing George Osborne's wife or moved on and Gordon Brown went out and said, I take full responsibility. The person responsible has been sacked. Yeah, which isn't really taking full responsibility, (laughs) but uh, you might say. But I think, yeah, that is the Boris Johnson playbook. This is Jill Rutter. Well, I think the character of the Prime Minister is enormously important. I mean, it's important as to whether it's a sort of relaxed atmosphere, a sort of hardworking atmosphere. Jill was a senior civil servant for 20 years, and she now thinks and writes about government. You have to remember the thing about Downing Street, it's not like any normal office. It's, it's small. Uh, it's much bigger than it looks from the front door, but it's much smaller than any sort of, you know, normal government department. So it, you know, it's like a rabbit warren. And critically also, it's the prime minister's home. Now, none of the prime ministers, you know, that I was working with had children on site. But when you had sort of Tony Blair in, he had his children living there. Gordon Brown, similarly. David Cameron, similarly. And now the prime minister has a couple of incredibly young children living there. So it's a very odd environment. I mean, the prime minister may not know absolutely everything that's going on in Downing Street, but he sets the tone for the place. And you basically do things in Downing Street. You need to think that the Prime Minister will be happy with what you're doing there. So even if the Prime Minister doesn't directly give the okay to things, then it's the Prime Minister who creates the sort of enabling environment, the authorising environment for what his team are doing on his behalf. Because ultimately, Every single person that works in Downing Street knows that they only have one source of authority to effectively lord it over the rest of government. It's nothing intrinsic to their role. It's because they are thought to be speaking on behalf of the prime minister. Anyone who's ever compared Boris Johnson to Donald Trump, anybody who said he's our version, tends to get shouted down. Trump's a one-off. He's an outsider. Boris Johnson is much more of a mainstream politician. But I wonder, in this particular respect, you suspect Boris Johnson might call it fibbing, and he certainly seems to smile when he gets caught. But lying, deliberately and unapologetically, has never been a British political tradition. Corner-cutting, exaggeration, half-answers, dodging the question. Yes, we're used to all of that. But not a lie. Not the kind we think Lee Kane, Boris Johnson's director of communications, told us when we first asked about checkers. We haven't been able to get hold of Lee Kane to get his version of events. We have tried. But two things occur to me. First, I find it hard to believe that a man in his position would have deceived us like he did unless, at the very least, he thought his boss would be okay with it. And second, it changes everything. Were you surprised to find out that Lee had told you something different to what we eventually unearthed happened? Yeah, I'm still surprised because I think, I mean, I think it makes me, it makes me feel rather slow on the uptake because actually what I realise is that I hadn't picked up the fact that the character of Downing Street, the whole Downing Street operation had changed, that I was, I was still playing by rules that, uh, you know, had applied for sort of 30 years of my working life. Um, but that lot, they, they've moved on. So it's a challenge for journalism, too. 
the American press agonised over how to deal with Donald Trump's lies. But there hasn't been anything like the same soul-searching in this country about what accountability means if people in power have decided that telling the truth doesn't matter anymore. My experience reporting this story has left me thinking it's time to start. What we unearthed about Checkers is just one example of evasion and hypocrisy at the very top of British politics. But it matters. It matters because, among all the allegations about the Prime Minister, this question of culpability, of who is responsible for pandemic rule-breaking, rests on a discussion about who sets the tone, the culture, the permissiveness in Downing Street. This was a story of wrongdoing, not by these staffers, but by the man at the very top, a prime minister whose life has, so far, afforded him a unique license to lie. This episode was presented and reported by me, Lara Spirit. It was produced by Katie Gunning and edited by Kerry Thomas. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. If you're depressed by Partygate or disappointed in our politics or you're angry and you're in need of a place to vent, then come and join our newsroom. We hold open editorial news meetings where we talk about stories and collectively, with you, get to the heart of them. Our members shape our work, so join me, join us. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and be my guest. Use the code BASHA50, that's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you. See you next week, where I'll be telling you a story about a war criminal, a courtroom, and a remarkable dad. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.